HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I am your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we are going to be talking about local food, farmers markets, and the changes in policy that have made these things much more accessible and affordable for millions of Americans with somebody who has been deeply involved in helping to make that possible, Gus Schumacher. Gus is the co-founder of Wholesome Wave, former Undersecretary of Agriculture for Farm and Foreign Foreign Agricultural Services at the United States Department of Agriculture, and former Commissioner of the Department of Agriculture in Massachusetts. Phew! Gus, uh, I'm very pleased to have you on the line. I think you're calling us from D.C. today. D.C., it's, uh, it's not quite tropical, but certainly better than Boston and all that snow, Kim. So yeah. Here in, well, here uh, in New York, we, coming to Roberto's. we just have uh, some minor flurries, but it's definitely a lot better than, yes, your home state of Massachusetts, where I think they're up to something like six feet or so now. Um, so, Gus, I was... Uh, very fortunate to know that you'll be able to join today and glad to first get to know you when I was working as a food policy advisor in the Bloomberg administration, where we got to do some work together um, in your with your organization, Wholesome Wave. And I wanted to start off today by just hearing from you a little bit about Wholesome Wave and what the inspiration was for the founding of that organization. Well, I had met um, uh, Michelle Nishan through an introduction to Michael Batterberry, who unfortunately passed away. Michael was the Founder and with his wife Ariane of um, Food Arts Magazine, and I met him some years ago when I was undersecretary. And he said, "You ought to meet this fellow Michelle Nishan, who's this uh, wonderful chef up in New York, who's very interested in healthy food." And so we had a, a lunch, I think, back in 1999 or 2000. And Michelle and I got on very well. We three of us got together and uh, have been friends ever since. 
friends and I guess co-conspirators and actually getting a lot of work done um, through the organization of Wholesome Wave. So what at that lunch, I guess you discovered a shared uh, feeling for local food and making that more accessible. Is that were those some of the things that you talked about even then? Yes, well, um, we talked about new ingredients, and this was back in 2000, 2001, when Michelle was running Heartbeat Restaurant, a fabulous restaurant in uh, the W Hotel in New York City. Yeah, I actually and spent we, an, a Valentine's Day there a long, long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what we talked about, I was working with some of these new immigrant farmers, mainly Hmong and Cambodian farmers around the country, who were growing vegetables that my father and family never knew about, uh, water spinach and uh, pea tips and pumpkin tips and um, things that just I'd never seen before, but they had great flavor. And so Michelle and I and Michael, how can we get some of these products into New York restaurants? So we called up the Kellogg Foundation and got a bit of money for a program we started called the New American Farmer Initiative, NAFI. And at one point in 2000 and before 9-11, there were trucks coming down from an aggregator named David Jackson in Deerfield, Massachusetts, with about 30 different products from about 20 different Hmong and Cambodian farmers. So it was very exciting, and Michelle and I have been kept in touch ever since. So since then, uh, Wholesome Wave has come to play a, a really significant role in seeding and spreading programs to help more people be able to afford local food through both what's known as the Double Up uh, Farmer's Market Program and the Fresh Fruit and Vegetable Prescription Program. Can you talk a little bit about each of those programs and how they've grown since you got started? Yes, when when uh, <clears throat> Michael and I and Michelle were kicking ideas around uh, eating some very, very uh, tasty and healthy meals in, in New York, um, we came up with these ideas of how to... How can more people who don't eat at such great restaurants uh, get access to the kind of healthy, fresh food that Michelle and I and Michael had brought into New York City back in the early part of the uh, last decade? Um, so we, we looked at different programs, and one of them was at farmer's markets where beginning of these new what I call electronic benefit transfer systems was just setting up sort of portable um, systems you could use at a farmer's market and so we for, for food stamps so they it was a change from stamps, the paper yes. coupons to the to the electronic exactly. use of food stamps and about 47 million americans um at getting food stamps and it, it it's gone down a bit since the end of the recession but still uh, quite a few people mainly working poor who are earning seven dollars an hour but fifteen thousand dollars really keeps you in poverty so a lot of the working poor needed a little bit of healthy food. They could come into a farmer's market, use their card, swipe it for $10, and then Michelle and I, we, Michael, got additional foundation money from Newman's Own and other foundations in Connecticut to provide a double up. So you, get, you swipe your card for $10 and get $20 in tokens uh, each week to buy fresh fruits and vegetables. And that, market, that program has exploded. And so it's a way of making it easier for everyone to um, have fresh access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And I know that's something that you had been working on really for a long part of your career and dates back to your time as uh, commissioner for, was it the Department of Food and Agriculture in Massachusetts? 
That is correct. I was a commissioner there starting in 1984 until 1991. And in your work there, you created what was really a forerunner of what's become a, a major federal program, the Farmer's Market Nutrition Program. And how did that get started? Well, I, I was um, selling, uh, very briefly, I was selling at a farmer's market for my brother. I'd fly up when I worked at the World Bank on the weekends to take my brother's uh, truck from Lookout Farm in Natick into the inner city in Dorchester. And I was packing up, a, packing up the truck and one of the boxes of pears fell apart into the gutter. And this woman picking the pears out of the gutter with her two boys. And I said, ooh, this is 1980. Uh, and I asked her, why was she doing this? And she said, she was, she was concerned that I was fussing at her. I said, no, 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 here's some, here's some really good stuff. And gave us a few, bo- a few pecks of uh, apples and pears. But then we chatted. And she said her husband had been on food stamps. She was on food stamps because her husband had left her six months ago and she couldn't afford to buy fruit with food stamps for her two boys. And that was, so, so that's was, years before you became commissioner. Yes, and then when I was commissioner, I took I mentioned that story to the folks at the Tufts Nutrition School, and they said at that point it was too difficult to work this program with food stamps, but you could do it for WIC and then for seniors. So we arranged, arranged in 1986, uh, some funding from the Childs Foundation and from the from the governor, and we started the WIC Farmers Market Nutrition Program. In fact, at Dorchester Fields Corner Farmers Market in Rosendale, and one or two other markets for seventeen thousand uh, dollars, and that expanded pretty rapidly. And then eighty six, eighty eight, we then amplified that to seniors, and that program now went into the federal budget, and I think it's something like fifty forty, nearly fifty eight million dollars. Combined, um, benefiting about 1.5 million seniors and WIC mothers, uh, and in annual funding from farmers. In annual funding at the federal level, that all started. That all goes back to the first $17,000 summer program in Massachusetts, I guess. That's when we started. Yes, I'm, Senator Kerry at that time and Congressman Atkins were very. Uh, they saw the program operating in the Bay State and said that let's see if we can put this into the farm bill in 1992 and then expanded a bit in the WIC program. And then when I was undersecretary later on, we managed to get uh, funding for the senior program, and those are, are doing very well. So it makes me think about how uh, Wholesome Wave has also been involved in um, working on policy issues and helping to advocate for the scaling up of programs that are working on the community level. Uh, We've seen a lot actually evolve in the policy landscape since Wholesome Wave first got started with uh, these farmer's market type of programs, um, particularly with the push to get farm bill funding to add federal funding to to incentivize health food purchases for food stamp users or SNAP users at farm at farm stands, as you were talking about, which is something that was authorized in the last farm bill. And so listening to you talk about your work in Massachusetts as well, I'm interested to hear what is your philosophy or your approach to how you get policy change in that kind of significant way? Well, I think um, what Michelle and I really work very hard is on data. In other words, what, what is the actual data that shows the impact of these programs, whether it's the double value for EBT or we can discuss later the fruit and vegetable prescription. 
and so you have the data. And then what we always try to do is, if um, Congressman Atkins in his district would come to Lowell or here in D.C., uh, some of these people on the staff actually see the programs in operation in their districts. Um, I work very closely um, with Mayor Menino, and he and I would visit, you know, lots of farmers markets in his in in the city, and he was very enthused. And then he, as you know, worked with with Mayor Bloomberg and others. So there's sort of a grassroots, as Shell and I called it, a a national partner network, and then that. People see these see these markets, see it operating in their communities, and say, you know, this is not a bad idea. Uh, let's talk to a congressman, or the congressman himself visits, or the senator, and said, you know, let's this is working pretty well. Senator Stabenow visited a number of markets um, with Orrin Hesterman in Michigan, she, and uh, she's the senator uh, in Michigan and the and the chair, the former chair of the Ag Committee for the Senate, right? You know, so when they actually see it in operation, whether it's Senator Stabenow, Mayor Menino. Um, Mayor Bloomberg uh, here in D.C., uh, Jack Evans, uh, councilman, and the mayors. They say this is, you know, this seems to be working. And then the shoppers say to the mayor, you know, Mayor, we kind of like this program. Um, can you speak to Congressman Atkins or it's at that time Senator Kerry, or in the case of Michigan, uh, Senator Stabenow? And then eventually that got a hundred million dollars in the. Farm bill in 2014. So it's getting your data, and it's getting local electeds to go to your events. That's your advice to on-the-ground advocates. That's what and have the people benefiting talk to the mayors, talk to the congressmen, talk to the city councilmen, and say, you know, not a bad idea. We love it. Let's do more of this, especially seniors. Um, we find that uh, elected politicians uh, do like to talk to seniors who who vote. And one of the things I think that is often challenging is that organizations that are running programs like this are often um, scraping by. You know, they're doing so much more already with less, and they don't always have the extra capacity to do that kind of policy advocacy. Are there ways that you've tried to overcome that in the with the partner organizations that you've worked with? Well, we're, we're working with about 60, 60 to 70 partner organizations uh, in about 28 states, um, and what we have convenings nationally, we bring, pe- bring people in. But more importantly, we we kind of work with our partners so that when there's something that comes up that's important from an advocacy or policy, we'll let them know um, that we really need their support. And would they would they call up their local um, councilman, mayor, congressman, um, or in the case of um, your, your meeting, your interview last week with Mary Dale DeBoer, uh, would, you, would, you write a, would you write a comment to the Internal Revenue Service when they're putting out these new regulations? Um, and we had 27 of our partners write great comments, as you heard last week. Uh, now we have nutrition embedded in the new IRS regulations. That so that, that was regulatory comments to the IRS um, relating to how nonprofit uh, hospitals can spend the money that they're required to spend on the community, which we can come back to that topic. But before we take a break, I, I just want to ask you one other follow-up question about data. You mentioned the importance of that, um, and I think a counterpoint to data is always personal anecdotes or individual stories. And so I wonder if there are things that you've witnessed, people you've talked to, or one or two stories that come to mind for you that make you feel confident that the program's Wholesome Wave has been working on 
uh, are effective. Well, that story I cited earlier where that woman and her two boys picked my brother's pears out of the gutter in Fields Corner, Dorchester, has really stuck with me um, over the years. But then last year, I was at the DuPont Farmer's Market, um, and I ran into um, a woman who was shopping with her daughter, um, and we just chatted, and she was using the nutrition incentives for her um, vouchers, and I gave her my card and said, thank you for being here. Her daughter then wrote me a letter a week later, or an email a week later, saying how much those incentives met to her mother. She walked a mile, um, half a mile each, each week, and she, she was using a lot more fruits and vegetables, and she said her health was improving. So it became part of her Sunday morning event into getting basically uh, double vouchers for her fruit and vegetables. And she was a Latino um, senior, and her daughter was wrote me this very very uh, emotional letter about how much these programs that Michelle and I and, Mac and Michael started meant to her mother. That's a great story. So we'll we'll take we'll take a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk some more about your work. You are listening to Butterfield East by the Soulful Saints. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. In our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. It cannot be stamped out in a factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. I urge you to drink different too. Go deeper. Cane5.com. This is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is Kim Kessler, and we're back on Eating Matters. Today we're talking with Gus Schumacher, who is one of the co-founders of Wholesome Wave, a national organization that works to connect underserved communities with fresh local food, and also ha has had a long-time career in the world of agriculture. And Gus, I wanted to take some time to... Uh, talk a little bit more about that, your own career trajectory. So I know that you come from a long line of farmers, uh, a family of farmers, and I'm curious what made you um, move away from the farm initially? What made you leave the farm and farming? Um, and did you always know that even after you took those steps that your career would still somehow revolve around food? Well, was, again, we... I guess the fourth or fifth generation farming family with my from my great grandfather, grandfather, and my dad was the president of the Boston Market Gardens Association um, in Lexington, Mass. And so when I graduated from uh, graduate school and um, left graduate school and graduated from college, I got a job at the World Bank in Washington. And at that point, they really started thinking more about agriculture. And since I wrote my thesis on actually. Um, an agricultural topic at college, I got very. I said, well, "This is suit, this is something I'd love to do," and uh, continue continue that for fifty years. 
And you were, uh, you kept farming as a part of your life through much of your period of education from, from what I've read about that time in your life. And as you said, continued to work on the farm uh, when you could on the weekends or selling vegetables through your college career. But when you were, you know, in London studying at the London School of Economics before you came back to Washington to work at the World Bank, um, you know, what were you thinking about then in terms of food? Did you were you focusing on agriculture in your studies even then? Uh, at the London School of Economics, there was a great interest in, in agricultural trade, and I studied that topic uh, quite a bit on the, going back into the history of Ricardo Smith and how they would look at uh, some of those those issues of um, ag trade um, in in their in their analyses and so that that could be quite interested in the uh, trading of agriculture and the all the tariffs and so forth and peon that that led me to the world bank um, work on development countries and then eventually I joined um, the USDA to work on the foreign ag service and then my amazement got it promoted to uh, be undersecretary, where we were able to use some of our authorities uh, in the legislation that was actually started in 1934 by uh, Franklin Roosevelt and Henry Wallace. There was flexibility there that I could look at it and use those legal authorities that I had as president of the Commodity Credit Corporation to start the Senior Farmers Market Nutrition Program. So I've kind of been passionate about this for over half a century. And hearing you talk about how uh, you used your discretion there, the authority that you had as a policymaker uh, to be able to implement programs that you cared about, um, and comparing that to the work that you're doing now in more of a policy advocacy role, I'd be interested to hear your reflections on that and the difference, um, the differences that you see in making policy change, wearing the different hats of policymaker versus advocate. Well, I think they they go together. Um, that you know, a number of people think about changing policy, but if you don't have a system that you can then um, actually implement some of the policies, and that's what I think Michelle and I uh, have worked with our team uh, and our partners uh, so much on. Of when, if you have an idea that we'd like to double vouchers, it's hard to ask foundations to come back year after year to to do these programs. So we, we kind of decided, looking at the data and how successful it was, how do we then work with Congress, and not only the Congress, but municipalities um, like New York City, when you were working there, Mr. Bloomberg put up $800,000 or a million to do these health bucks. Other cities did Boston Bounty Bucks. All, that, all those mayors then also advocated, and then we came kind of a network of cities, cities, towns, states, and then the federal government with Ms. St- uh, Senator Stabenow and Chairman Lucas. So it's, it was sort of a, a, a kind of a deep dive, but it started with partner networks. So that uh, is a good segue into talking a little bit about what is going on, the advocacy that is going on now around uh, community benefits, spending for hospitals, and your work with the Fruit and Vegetable Prescription Program, which we were also able to um, get off the ground here in New York City, and that's still going on here in New York City. So I guess first in its most basic terms, can you just describe what the Fresh Fruit and Vegetable Prescription Program is? Yes, it's basically um, if I have diabetes and um, I'm a little 
my blood pressure's in the one seventies, um, and I'm seeing my family and I are seeing a health clinic or seeing a doctor. In, in the past, the doctor said you you have a pre-diabetes and you're a little on the heavy side. You you and your family should probably do more exercise and eat healthier. See you next year. Now the doctors can then say, well, you are you are a little bit pre-diabetic and your blood pressure is a bit high. We would like to give you an actual prescription um, called a fruit and vegetable prescription to take to a local farmer's market each week for 20 weeks for one extra serving of fruit and vegetables per day per each member of your family. So a family of four uh, could get 28 to 30 to $40 a week to go to a prescribed by a doctor at one of the hospitals in New York City uh, to go to one of the local farmers markets nearby at the hospital or any market in New York City at the green markets, exchange their prescription for health bucks, and then come back each month to get the prescription refilled, and the doctor then will measure uh, weight loss, uh, BMI changes, body mass index changes, or blood pressure changes. And we're getting, for children, about a 40% improvement in their basic body mass index. And that's, that's kind of remarkable. Again, coming back to why the data is so important. It's, it's interesting to just hand out the prescriptions, but if you don't have uh, analytical data to show the impact of your program on health, um, that's, and that's why I think the new IRS regulations are going to be so important. Well, so let's um, just... Explain that a little bit. So the the fruit and vegetable prescription program is now it's been operated in New York City for a couple of years and at some piloted at some other locations across the country as well. And I know that you are hoping that it will be able to grow um, with some of these larger sources of funding. So what what are you optimistic about in terms of growing that program? Well, I think with the um, data that we've seen so far, doctors are very enthused about this program. They they have now something to say to a family, um, not just to hand them metformin, which is a, a medicine for improving, uh, helping to reduce diabetes, but they have a fruit and vegetable prescription where the family as a, often as a unit, and I've seen this in central D.C. and I've seen it in New York City, the mothers and fathers with the young children go to the market, fill the prescription, and then the children, 8, 10, 12, take some of the tokens, and they, they start doing the shopping themselves. This does not happen in a supermarket. So and it's every week. So the children really, the teenagers really get familiar with these fruit and vegetables. It's exciting. It's a social event, and there's just a lot of enthusiasm. Um, where they, and then the farmers, the farmers love it because they see the same customers coming back. In the case of, you asked me about a story, uh, one of our uh, Latino farmers, Astrid Platus at Columbia Heights, so this family coming in each week, and a young teenager uh, was coming in with her mother and each week, and she said, you know, I need help. Could, would you help me? Would you come back each week, not only for your prescriptions, but I will pay you to help me stock the shelves and, you, of course, speak fluent Spanish, and work with my new Hispanic uh, shoppers, and you can be part of my system. And so he's now working with Astrid, and he is a beneficiary of the veggie prescription. So Kind of a kind of a fascinating about side the connections, story. right? The connections that can be made. Um, yes. So, having had your long career spanning 
um, from D.C. to your role in the state government as well, but particularly having uh, been in D.C. for so long, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what the term food policy has meant through the years. So, you know, 25 years ago, what do you think if people said food policy that was thought of and how has that changed uh, in terms of what food policy means today? I think 25 or 30 years ago, um, there wasn't much discussion on food policy. Uh, food, you know, it was ag- called agricultural policy and to deal with subsidies for corn, cotton, soybeans, and wheat. Uh, but over the past 25 years, in particular the last 15 years, um, there's been this sort of grassroots movement, um, food policy councils, uh, mayors getting setting up their own food policy directors like uh, Mayor Bloomberg did with you and Mayor, Mayor Menino did with Edith Manan in, in Boston. And now, here in D.C., the D.C. City Council has created a food policy council, a food policy director, and put 150000 to perhaps 300000 into... M- nutrition incentives called D.C. Produce Plus. So it's be 15 years ago, Michael Pollan was not writing. Um, mm-hmm. Two years ago, Mark Benton was not writing. All of a sudden, every month, there is an article in a paper on healthy eating and the linkage between agriculture, nutrition, and health. That didn't happen 10 years ago. Are there any things that you thought would change in, in agricultural food going back to your time in the USDA or even before that that haven't? Um, I think the the area that I think will have will, is changing recently very rapidly, and that's why I come back to these new internal revenue um, IRS regulations. I think with 10 to 13 million Americans now insured through the Health Care Act, that hospitals are now turning to wellness and prevention. And I think the hospitals now coming in, as you've seen in uh, your time with the veggie prescriptions in the Bronx and Harlem and now Bellevue, uh, what's going on here in D.C. with the health clinics, I think that's the next big movement. How do hospitals and how do doctors work with their patients and improve nutrition and then link that to local agriculture for healthy food? So there's a, again, I come back to this theme of health, agriculture, nutrition kind of integrated through a veggie prescription program. I think that's going to really take off, um, and particularly as seniors try and improve their health and live longer, uh, there's going to be a lot of interest in improving health with better diet. And the role that farmers can play in that, I think that's going to be the next big step. So one uh, other question I have for you is, we've talked a lot about policy and the role of policy in making change in the food system, but there is a great story about uh, when you were the commissioner of the Food and Agriculture Department in Massachusetts and you going into restaurants with your local tomato and sitting down and cutting up the local tomato uh, to make your own salad. And your point was to get chefs to realize that there were these great tomatoes nearby and and sort of spark the interest in the farm-to-table movement at that time, um, which is really a strategy that goes to using market forces to drive change. So I'm curious what you think about the role of market forces and consumer demand in making change you know, versus uh, the importance of policy. Well, I think that um, that, that was kind of funny. <laughs> so my brother's, brother's tomatoes and, uh, you know, Tomatoes were coming in from you know far away, and they they were kind of 
pink and not terribly flavorsome. So I'd, I'd um, go into restaurants with my friends and dates and, and um, bring my own tomatoes. And some restaurants weren't too keen on it, but Gordon Hammersley and Peter Davis uh, thought, hey, where did you get those tomatoes, Gus? And I said, well, from uh, my, my brother's farm. I said, well, just try some olive oil and, and uh, vinegar and let's, let's see what they taste like. And uh, Gordon and I got on pretty well since then, 25, 30 years ago. But my sense is the market movement, it wasn't, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there wasn't Whole Foods. Um, Whole Foods profits just went up, shoppers went up, and they were featured in today's, new, uh, today's papers uh, as more, uh, the theme was more and more people eating healthy, going to Whole Foods, and I see other supermarkets now bringing in healthier foods. Um, Walmart's going, bringing in local and regional foods. Uh, some of the other major supermarkets are really reaching out. Uh, Hannaford uh, is doing local food. Wegmans is a leader in this area. Um, even some of the new his- Latino stores in New York and in Boston are, are featuring more fresher, local, uh, healthier food. Um, there's also a whole area of, of work on food banks where some of the food banks are using this new IRS-mandated um, funding from local hospitals, like in Cape Cod, the Cape Cod Healthcare Foundation is now um, paying for fish under your species from one of our food hubs in Massachusetts, in Cape Cod and Chatham, to uh, being filleted, frozen, labeled, and then donated to 900 um, patient, um, shoppers at food banks on Cape Cod because beef and pork are so expensive. It's an inexpensive protein, uh, and it was just, it went, went like in a few days. That's pretty incredible. Uh, so getting fish straight from your, your local fishermen into your local food banks. And paid for by these new community benefit uh, funding because the hospital would like to improve the health of those 900 people that are going into food banks so they don't come into the emergency room with diabetic issues better to pay the local fishermen to provide healthy, fresh, underutilized species, hake, fluke, dogfish, and um, scup um, in fillets frozen in 8-ounce to 12-ounce packages, and apparently it just jumped off the shelf. Right, and it's so interesting to see the different ways that hospitals are thinking about the importance of prevention. I know on one of our upcoming shows we're going to be talking to the uh, people who run and who conceived of the food pantry that's run in one of the hospitals in Boston with the same with the same goal really of trying to keep clients as healthy as possible so that they don't end up coming to the hospital because of nutrition related issues. Um, so before we wrap up, Gus, we started the show with me um, mentioning one of my former Valentine's Days, but Valentine's Day is coming up this weekend, and I know from talking to you that. Uh, your love of food has um, played a role in your love life. So I'm interested if you can share a story or two about uh, how you wooed your longtime wife uh, with, through your, your food-related events. <laughs> well, uh, I guess it goes back to that, uh, I guess the second date uh, with, that I was out with my wife at that time back in 1987 took it to Hammersley's restaurant, which is my, the second time I met her, and I had, I had these, my brother's local, the tomatoes at my brother's farm, and, and I just was going in, and, and uh, 
I didn't know how she was going to react. And uh, I know Gordon was going to be okay with it, but how, how Susan would react. To you bringing you know, your own food to the restaurant? bringing my own food, my own locally grown, healthy, you know, great, tasty, <laughs> succulent tomatoes to Hammersley's restaurant on Tremont Street in Boston on my second date. And um, she, she, she was fine with it. And um, we married a few years later, and I'm taking her out tomorrow night to a wonderful restaurant here in D.C., and there's local food, so I took it to the Blueberry Association meetings, and I take it to all the farmers markets, and I try and <laughs> I try and during the season buy thirty or forty percent of my food from the local markets because it's, I get to see the farmers, and um, I'm enjoying cooking more now that I'm not working, you know, at USDA. I have a I have a more time to help prepare food at home, so it's it's kind of fun to seasonally cook Brussels sprouts and um, and some of the local greens and add, add a little bit of uh, leeks to it, and then do a little roasting with carrots and parsnips and, and try that out a little bit more. So change the cooking system seasonally, and Susan seems to go along with it. Yeah, all sounds delicious. So we had uh, advice on how to get policy made and now advice on how to use local food, the local food, the path to the love of your life's heart, um, uh, and maybe even some recipes <laughs> coming from you, Gus, about how to do that. So I want to thank you so much for joining today and sharing all of those memories and reflections and uh, wisdom about making change with us. That's Gus Schumacher of Wholesome Wave. Um, really a pleasure to have you today, Gus. Well, thank you very much, and thank you, Kim, for all your leadership on food policy over the years. Uh, well, and... Uh, a very, a very small, um, a very small bit compared to all of your leadership on food policy over the years. But I really appreciate having this conversation, and that brings us to the close of this episode of Eating Matters. I want to thank Tim Archer for our show music. The show is available as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher, and here on Heritage Radio Network as well. I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.